Hi friends. Glad you've joined us again. I hope you're doing well. No Water Methodists are doing just fine. As uh, you may or may not know, we disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church a few months ago. Price tag associated with that was around $75,000, which is not a small thing for a church of our size. But God is very faithful, and our board, our ad board, got together just yesterday as I'm recording this, and there are many signs of health and vitality here. We're just so happy to be doing so well, and that's because of the prayers of love and support from a lot of folks like you who appreciate what we're putting out into the world and know that uh, Christ alone has the wonderful words of life. And so I, I hope that as we meditate upon God's Word uh, today in this podcast that you're listening to, that you are given ears to hear and uh, a heart that can humbly receive what Christ has offered through His Holy Word. Just want to make sure that uh, people who've been plugged in for the church for some time know we've been facilitating the building of a new church building in Abuja, Nigeria, which is their um, capital. And so we are about to wire over a final batch of money. So if that's something that you've been meaning to do and you'd like to give back to God out of your abundance and you think this church is doing fine but you would like to help uh, a church in a persecuted part of the world, then uh, go ahead and make sure we get that money here soon so that we can send it on in the name of Jesus. Um, the other thing to be aware of is we've started a new ministry called the Bountiful Tables Ministry. It's been going on for four months. It's a group of mothers who gather on Mondays and make three dinners for their own families, but then cook extra dinners for people who want to eat healthy, locally sourced, cheaper food. And so if uh, if you wouldn't mind praying for that ministry, it's already making a big difference in many households. It's making a big difference in the, the women's lives who are preparing the meals. Christ is at the center of everything that we do. I'm just very pleased that it's going the way that it is. If you want to know more, you can check out our website at nowatermethodists.org. You can also just, you know, talk to people around here. So <clears throat> anyway, that's enough of an intro. I hope you enjoyed today's proclamation of the word from this last Sunday. And as always, I'm going to invite you to follow up with me if the Lord's working on your heart and you know that you need to come closer to him, but you're not sure exactly what to do or you know you need to do it in fellowship with others, then please use me. This is this is what I've signed up for, so you can contact me at pastor.rickman at gmail.com. The whole point to this uh, Word of God thing is is that we're supposed to do something with it, so I hope that God reveals to you what it is that He expects of you in this time of meditating on His Word. God bless you. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Um, we've been preaching on this. We've been preaching a, a chapter a week. If you've missed what came up till now and you want to track it out, we have a podcast that's on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's everywhere. Look for No Water Methodists, and uh, you can track where we're coming from. Today's chapter, we're in chapter 6. Remember, the context of Corinth is it's a Roman city. They demolished the Greek city 100 years before it was refounded in the year 50 B.C., 
They are a port city. They have ports to the north and the south, and they have a bunch of maritime people coming in and partying all the time. They are a Greco-Roman city. They're very full of themselves with philosophy. They like the Sophists. They like the Cynics. They like the Stoics. Those are the three main groups. All of them would have philosopher celebrities come through town, beat their own drum, uh, toot their own horn, gather a following. Paul did the opposite of that. He refused to have a patron who would pay him money. He refused to toot his own horn. He preached Christ and him crucified. That's it. A scandal to the Greeks and an insult to the Jews. He has preached so far the importance of being foolish in the Lord rather than wise in the eyes of the world because the main challenge before the Corinthians is they are not discerning the difference between the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom of God. So he's been highlighting that in many ways. Last week we got to one case of extreme sexual immorality that they should have known better and he shames them for it. This, this chapter He's going to shame them for their legal behavior and come back to sexual immorality, which I would remind you the Greek word is porneia, where we get pornography. It is very important to receive the critique today. Y'all knew we were getting into 1 Corinthians. I gave you a chance to choose another book, and we chose this book together, so we're going to listen to it together. Amen? Amen. Okay. Chapter 6, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another... Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Who do you think it means? Some of us have read this before. Who do you think it means by the ungodly? Non-believers in worldly authority, worldly judges. So whether or not the judge is actually a believer does not matter. The judge represents an ungodly authority, namely the state. The state is not the church. They have other prerogatives. I love that we have a district judge in our church. However, whenever he gets up there, he's not ruling based on what's in the Bible. He's ruling based on what's in the U.S. Constitution and Oklahoma state law and jurisprudence. Those are not the same thing. Here Paul is saying, you guys are having disputes inside of the body of Christ. You are arguing with each other, and rather than resolving it inside of the church, you're taking it to a worldly judge. This is not good. He has much stronger language than that. Verse 2. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? What's he talking about there? Who's the Lord's people? We are. We're going to judge the world? Let's go on just a minute. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? We're at verse 3 now. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Are you and I going to judge the world? Are we going to judge angels? It says it right here. It can't mean anything but this. And what he's referring to is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. It talks about the final judgment. The Ancient of Days has shown up. The books are opened with the list of people's sins. There's the book of life of those who are granted citizenship in the kingdom. Verse 27 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. That means that God is going to give you and I authority to rule if we are in Christ. So he was talking in the previous chapter about how we don't judge people outside of the church. God will judge them. That's before the day of the Lord. 
on the day of the Lord, God grants us authority to judge other humans and angels. What is needed to, for proper judgment? Discernment, wisdom. And where, are we supposed to get that now, or does God just magically, poof, Jeffrey, you've been an idiot all your life, you haven't ch chased wisdom at all, but I'm going to make you wise. No, we are granted salvation today, and we grow in godly virtue today. So we are expected to seek wisdom today, otherwise the Bible makes no sense. We seek wisdom today, not just as individuals, but collectively. What Paul is highlighting is they are supposed to have godly wisdom and discernment, but they lack it. You remember when a couple weeks ago he said, y'all think you're all grown-up adults, you're children. You're a bunch of babies. I want to feed you meat, but I still have to give you milk. He was insulting them in that way. Now he's insulting them again. You guys are supposed to judge angels, and you're so dumb that you can't even do a basic case. You have to take it to a worldly court. That is what he is saying here. I know I'm taking liberties with it, calling them dumb. The inference there is more insulting than that. Listen to this. He says, verse 4, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask a ruling from those whose life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it a sin to shame somebody? No. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be doing it loud and proud. It is not a sin to shame somebody. It can be a holy and godly thing to admonish someone to their shame. What you want to look out for is someone who does that unnecessarily. That's abusive. Verse 5, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another brother to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Is he shaming them? He says, I'm doing this to shame you. And then he frames it. Uh, I mean, we do this with our own kids. You know, sometimes our kids hit each other. And we go, how would you like to get hit? Would that feel good? You're doing that to your brother. No, 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 no. Right now, Susie, we're not going to share our dirty laundry in front of everybody. But, all right, what were you going to say? All right, yeah, we were going to tattle on somebody. Okay, okay. We got good anecdotes. But everybody does this. Everybody fails to practice the golden rule. And one of the ways that we shame brothers, you're going to do that to your own brother? You're going to do that to your sister? Shame on you. We don't usually do the shame thing, but the inference is, this is your brother, your sister. You're responsible for them. You take care of them. You don't punish them. You don't hit them. And then Paul's saying, you don't take them to court. Verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. That is, that is a mic drop moment right there. And I, the, the metaphor I came up with that I'm proud of is, if you've ever watched a box, boxing match or a, a mixed martial arts, they, they are hitting each other, and sometimes you'll see it that somebody gets KO'd, knocked out, and they're on the ground, and they think they're still fighting. They're... they're they think they're, they're kind of knocked out, they're not with it, and they're, they're moving, and the ref comes, hey, man, you, you lost, you're out. That's what he's doing with them. They think they're still fighting the fight of Jesus. They think they're still walking the walk. They've been completely knocked out. Their, their legitimacy has been removed from them. They have, been, they have been completely defeated already. They're acting like they're still a church. They're feeling good about themselves. He is humbling them. He is, he's shaming and admonishing them because they cannot practice discernment within the body. Now, 
Do we live in an era today where individuals within the church feud and argue and get worldly state authority involved? But it's okay for us, though, right? It, it was not okay for them, but it's okay for us, right? Because we're in America, and whatever Christians do in America is okay. The Bible doesn't apply to us, right? I'm being intentionally facetious. It is as scandalous today, it is as shameful today as it was back then. And a church has no right to see itself as a church if they are not intervening. I had a conversation with somebody this last week where they were talking to me about how it is they ducked out of their own church whenever they were having the disaffiliation conversation. And they just said, look, the church I grew up in, it wasn't about fighting. It wasn't about disagreement. It was about everybody coming together and being peaceable together. And when we fight in the church, it just feels like the world has come in and invaded and ruined everything. And for better or for worse, I didn't hit him this hard, but I said that, that image of peace within the church that you got was a lie. It's a historical anomaly. When you look at the history of the Christian church, church has been a place where people disagree and argue because these are the most important things and we don't all see them the same way. Now, does that mean that we draw a line in the sand and we say, you're wrong and you're going to hell and I'm right and everybody who's with me is going to hell? That's not how we do it. Rather, the Christian life the communal life is learning how to disagree and maintain our righteousness. There is no option to go through life without disagreement, without dissension, without arguing. That is a fiction. That's a fairy tale. If you're clinging to that, I need to disabuse you of that notion. That is not a way to go through life. God will not afford you that. What he has afforded you is his holy word, which instructs you as to how you go about your life when there is disagreement and dissension. And if you don't do it that way, then you jeopardize your salvation. I'm a Wesleyan Arminian. That means I believe that people can and do renounce the salvation that they have in Christ Jesus, and he honors that. Otherwise, I just don't see why the Bible was written. It makes no sense to me to say you're saved. It doesn't matter how you live. Rather, what Paul says here is, you are saved. Remember how you ought to live because everything is at stake. The church is not a place where we all get along. The church is a place where we disagree righteously. That means we don't name call, we don't throw things, we don't uh, slander people, and we sure don't take them to court. And churches that forget that and that have feuds within the church rightly decline and die because they are scandalizing God's name. And that's what he says here. He says in verse 6, and this in front of unbelievers, because we model to the world what godly living looks like. And if we can't even talk to each other, if we can't even, you know, if there are two people feuding in our church, I'm going to use Joseph and Christopher because they're the most agreeable people in the world I've ever known. There's no scenario where they get into a feud. Hypothetically, if they get into a feud and things are escalating and we just go, oh, I don't like conflict. Let's not talk about it. Let's just worship. You know, let's talk about Jesus. Meanwhile, everything is exploding around them. We're going to be judging angels. We're going to be judging other people. We can't get in the middle and say, what's going on, guys? You, what happened? What happened? Let's figure this thing. Let's end this right now. We can't do that. Well, I, I just don't like conflict. If you don't like conflict, you can't follow Jesus. Jesus said, I do not come to bring peace. What did Jesus say he brought? A sword. I come to divide family members. That is what is ahead for us. If you don't want any fighting in your life, hide in your home 
Don't talk to anybody. And what do you know? That's what a lot of people do nowadays, isn't it? A lot of people hide in their home, playing video games, watching Netflix, drinking, smoking pot. They don't do anything that stresses them out. No conflict. And what do they find? They're miserable. Humans are not made to be alone. Humans are not made to be without conflict. Humans are not made to be without... Rather, what we find is when we don't have worthy conflict, anxiety, we invent stupid conflict and anxiety. That's what reality TV is, right? It's just people that are so blessed, they don't know what it is to suffer, and so they just turn on each other. This is what humans do. Our opportunity is to be anxious, to struggle and fight about the most important, most meaningful things in life, and to do it well. Have you ever... I mean... I'm not, I'm not into Kung Fu. I'm, if somebody who was training Krav Maga fought me, I would last approximately 0.3 seconds, okay? I would not do well in a fight. But can you imagine how good it would feel to train to fight and just lay somebody out? You know, that's your training at work, you know? Or like, I shouldn't use that example. That's violent. Don't do it. <laughs> or imagine that we trained fire drills yeah, at school, that's something teachers do here. In a fire, here's what we do, and then you time it, and everybody gets out in a safe and orderly fashion, and you go, man, we did that great. We trained, and we did it very well. That's what the church is with conflict. We're going to have conflict out there. We're going to have conflict in here. Now, during peacetime, we train so that when times of conflict come, we do it well. So it doesn't tear the body apart so that we don't have people running for the door going, I came for a place of peace. This is a place of war. The world has invaded here. No. No. The Bible has invaded here. There's a good John MacArthur quote. He says, a lot of people don't like talking doctrine because doctrine divides. He said, that's true. Doctrine divides truth from fiction. Lies from truth. Light from dark. That's what doctrine does. And the church is the place where we say we are going to be God's people instead of the world. And we're going to talk about what it means to be God's people rather than worldly people. And the Corinthian church had forgotten that. They were letting the world invade their fellowship. And Paul is chasing the world back out and saying, you guys should know better. You should have discernment. And just in case it needs to be said, if any of you ever feud with one another... Get ready for a call from me, and I'm going to get some other people involved because we are going to be a true church. Amen? Amen. Jesus warned, if anyone has anything against a brother or sister, before you go to court, you figure out everything you can to be at peace with them because if you go before the court, you'll go before the magistrate, and they will throw you in jail, and you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. And the notion being there, if you escalate to deferring to the world rather than God's authority— you deserve whatever bad thing happens to you. Where are we? Verse 9? Verse 8. Instead, oh, no, 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 we didn't even finish verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Let's get clear. Is it wrong? Uh, have you sinned if someone wrongs you? Have you sinned if somebody cheats you? There's a saying in our language, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Is that in the Bible? That is not a biblical ethic. If you fall for someone's lies time and time again, you have not sinned. If you lose time and time, if people, if you don't lock your front door and people come in and rob you 10 times over, 
you have not sinned. It is not a sin to lose stuff. It is not a sin to get taken advantage of. But, he says in verse 8, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know, well, we're going to, he gets into a vice list right there. The thing is, there are a lot of people who say, you're not going to cheat me. I'm going to get you first. That is not how Christians live. And as a worldly way, I'm drawing a clear line here. Paul is drawing a clear line. There's a way of the world, then there's a way of Christ. The way of the world says, you're not going to cheat me, I'm going to cheat you. That is a worldly way. It has no, people who follow Jesus cannot live that way. Rather, we get cheated. Because if you have heavenly treasure, do you really need to worry about earthly treasure? Is there anything that people can take from you, really, when you have eternal treasures in heaven? The only reason people care about getting cheated by other people is because they do not rightly fear or love the Lord. They do not believe in the next world where they have heavenly treasures. Rather, they hold on to these treasures. Ain't nobody going to get them from me. What's at heart there? Greed. Not welcome in the kingdom. I hope I'm hitting somebody right now. Oh, greedy. By the way... <laughs> I'm hitting myself right now. <laughs> I lock my front door. I don't like getting cheated. If somebody stole money from me, I would be angry. So I'm preaching it myself right now, okay? Verse 8, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Wait, 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 wait. I thought Jesus died for me and it covers all my sins so I can do plenty of wrong and not worry. Isn't that the deal? You know, uh... For all the sin, grace is more powerful, so I can sin the more, so there's more grace, right? God forbid. We talked about this in Romans. He says, listen to this list. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list, isn't it? Are many people guilty of those things? Here he's not saying uh, you, you, you gave in once and did it, but he's saying this is your way of life. If this is your way of life after you've known Christ, it doesn't matter how many times you sit in a pew, how much money you give to the church, doesn't matter how much you say you love Jesus, you don't fit in the kingdom. You're not going to be in the kingdom. And how many of these are of a sexual nature? Like five of them, right? Are we right to get the impression that sexual behavior matters? Yeah. And let's just go ahead and address this. We live in a culture that is very licentious in this way. It says, oh, you know, Paul was a Jew. He came out of a very staunch Jewish background. He's bringing in his own bigotries into this and putting God's name on it. You ever heard anybody say anything like that? We know God's about love, and what you do really doesn't matter that much. Our job is to accept, not to judge, right? Paul was very aware of the Greco-Roman way of life. He was very aware of critiques that we would have today. And yet he said what he said, not because of its opinion, his opinion or his bigotry, but because it's God's truth. And if you come to the Bible looking for excuses to write it off, you're not going to hear God's truth. 
I preach that sermon like every Sunday, so I'm going to spare you today. Verse 11, and, what, and that is what some of you were. It's talking about people who were immoral and doing these, these nine or ten things. That is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our, our God. So the notion is when you come to Christ, you live differently. You stop sinning. Well, what if I come to Christ and I don't stop sinning? Well, then you're not in Christ. You might think you are, but this is, you know. What if I go and get a haircut, but my hair is still long? You didn't get a haircut. What if I go and get my shoes shined, but they're still really dirty? You didn't get your shoes shined. You know, I mean, categorically, this is a very form, basic form of logic, and yet we bend our brains to imagine that we can be in Christ and still enslaved to sin. That makes no sense. Verse 12, he's quoting them. You see the quotations? I have the right to do anything. We're familiar with this mentality in America, right? This is America. I'm free. I got my rights. I have the right to do anything, you say. And he doesn't disagree with them. He, you do have the right to do anything. You've been freed in Christ. You can sin. You cannot sin. But not all things are beneficial, he says. Just because you, you can drive 80 miles an hour does not mean you should. Just you, you can do meth if you're in Portland, Oregon, legally. It's not a good idea, okay? You have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. He quotes him again. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's been very clear in Romans, and he's clear again here. Sin masters you. Sin is a taskmaster, a slave master, and when you choose sin, you choose to be enslaved. It's like Jesus set you free from prison, and you're like, thanks, Jesus. I'm going to go back to prison now. You turn right back around and go back to the, uh, the barbed wire fences. That's what you do when you choose sin. Or as the scripture says, it's like a dog who vomits and then licks it back up. He's saying you can do that. You have the freedom to do that. It's just a bad decision. Uh, every time I bring that up, I see people go, yeah, that's what it's supposed to make you do. That's, that's what it makes God do when you choose sin again after he has saved you. Verse 13, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. You know, Paul talked about this division between spirit and body, right? All of the, the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit, they say, hey, you know, I got this body. What I do to it doesn't matter. You know, I can, I can trash it. God is going to raise up my spirit on the last day. Everything's going to be just fine. And Paul is saying, ooh, Christians have an interesting relationship with the body. Do we believe that our bodies are resurrected? Yeah, we just confessed that in the Apostles' Creed, I believe, in the resurrection of the body. What we do with our bodies matters. Now, what happens to our bodies does not affect us. If somebody assaults you, if someone hurts you, that does not, in fact, that can draw you closer to Jesus because, remember, people hurt him. But when you choose with your own body to sin, Oh boy, does Paul warn us. He says, food, you know, does your stomach desire food? Yeah. Eat whatever you want. And then does your sex drive desire things? Yeah. Feed it. That is the ancient view. That's a worldly view of these passions. I have this desire. My stomach desires food. Other parts of me desire sex. It's what it deserves. You know, let's just feed the body. And he says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for your body. By his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead 
and he will raise us also. He's talking about the bodily resurrection there. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Did you know this? When you are in Christ, your body becomes an extension of Jesus himself. So whatever you do to your body, you are doing to Jesus. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Prostitute is a person who sells their body for money, right? So when we're talking about sexual immorality, we're talking about people who are exercising their sexual drives in a way that doesn't glorify God for worldly gain. Doesn't have to be a literal prostitute. He is just categorically condemned any sexual activity that's out of a male-female sexual union in God's sight. He's just already condemned that, but now he's making a point here. A prostitute is the opposite of a holy righteous person with regard to how they exercise their body. And you, an extension of Christ's body, you're going to unite your body with an unholy person? You're going to do that to Jesus? Verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. He's talking about Adam and Eve in Genesis, right? But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. This is why what we do sexually matters. It's because what we do in our bodies is not just physical, it's also spiritual. He is making very clear that our bodies and our spirits are attached, entwined. What we do with them matters and has huge implications for our relationship with God. There is no way to give in to your passions, gay or straight. I know we've been in this era where we beat up only on one sexual minority. No, it's everybody has desires that are unholy. And if you give in to them, a uh, young man's got to sow his wild oats. If you give in to them, you're turning your back on Jesus. And there are a lot of people who don't want to hear that. Oh, that hurts me. It's supposed to hurt you. It's a holy hurt. It's a holy shame. This is given to us so that we don't ruin things in our relationship with God. We live in an era that teaches us to be desensitized to this. There was a person in another church, I, I was in a, a meeting somewhere else, it doesn't matter, they were letting uh, people cohabitate with them that were not um, uh, married. Didn't feel, you know, who am I to judge, doesn't feel like a big deal to me, and I didn't have to say anything. Another brother said, well, what if the other person they were with was a child? Would you have a problem then? And they are like, yes. And that's because our society still knows that pedophilia is a sin, but we've normalized some other stuff, so it's not such a big deal, right? That betrays that our sensibilities are more informed by the culture than they are by the Bible. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. What kind of things do you flee? Tornado, fire, hurricane, earthquake, danger. Flee. You don't negotiate. You don't take your time. You don't go, oh, I think I can do it right, though. No, flee, run. It is going to get you killed. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do, not, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Hey, children, what is our only hope in life and death? We are not our own. We belong to God. We've been bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, that has sexual implications, but a lot more than that. I put out an article just yesterday on how I try and behave myself when I'm angry. 
because what I do with my body matters. If I am a vessel of the Holy Spirit, but I am not handling my anger well, I'm not handling my passions well, I'm not governing my mouth well, then I am hurting God. I'm hurting my relationship with God. We want to imagine that we can have a relationship with God where our sin does not affect our relationship with him. The Bible does not afford that. So that's why Paul is writing. The Corinthians believe that their sin is not a big deal. And he is lovingly but harshly saying it is a big deal. It is a huge deal. You need to flee from what you're doing. You need to completely change. What's the word we have for that? Repent. So let's end on that. The world has affected us. It's poisoned us. It's made us see things different than how they are in God's sight. Renounce, repent, view things how God does. Feel a holy anger at what angers God. Feel a holy love of what pleases God. Only there will we find peace. Amen? Amen. All right. I feel like we did that one okay. Um, I'm not going to give that sermon again anytime soon because I just gave it really good here. So... Uh, next time the pastor says, we're going to do 1 Corinthians. If you didn't like this, go, oh, I think I really like Hebrews instead, pastor. Can we do Hebrews? And we'll do Hebrews, but we've done 1 Corinthians. Now we're going to do chapter 7 next week.